Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're exploring the science behind one of the most remarkable but often overlooked organs in the mammalian body, the placenta. Grown from scratch and then disposed of in a matter of months, the placenta is an essential part of growing a baby forming the interface between mother and fetus for the exchange of oxygen and nutrients inside the womb. But beyond this functional role, we still know little about what else the placenta might be up to. And, as we'll see, when we do actually start taking a closer look, there are plenty of genetic surprises in store. To find out more about the wonders of the placenta, I caught up with an old colleague, Professor Ros John. Ros was a postdoc in the lab of Professor Azim Sarani, where I did my PhD, tolerating my student idiocy and clumsiness as we tried to figure out the mysteries of genomic imprinting, where the genes that come from mum and the genes that come from dad are used differently in the developing foetus. Now running her own group, the Pregnancy Research Epigenetics Group, or PREG Lab, at Cardiff University, Ros's research focuses on understanding maternal mental health, imprinted genes, and the role of the placenta during pregnancy, and even beyond. And uh, as you'll hear in the background, her dog decided that it wanted to get in on the interview too, so sorry about that. So, to start with, what is the placenta, and what does it do? Really good question, because I think years ago, everyone thought the placenta was very boring, It's this horrible floppy tissue that comes out after the baby's born. It's just full of blood. Ah. It's full of blood and and it just gets chucked in the bin. Well, it doesn't just get chucked in the bin, so it's checked to make sure it's intact and then it just gets chucked in the bin. But actually now we recognise that the placenta is actually performing all these fundamentally important roles. It's not just a simple device for transporting nutrients from the mother to baby. It's actually the bit that we specialise on. It's an endocrine organ. So it makes all these hormones that flood the mother's system during pregnancy that uh, induce all these adaptations that are required during pregnancy. So the example would be if you ate something very sugary, normally when you're not pregnant, you get insulin secreted from the pancreas and all that excess glucose is sort of shuffled away into your peripherals. But in pregnancy, the baby needs nutrients to grow. And so it's really necessary to ensure that the mother, when she eats food, that some of that nutrition crosses the placenta of the baby. So one of the key adaptations of pregnancy is altering the way the mother manages glucose and other nutrients to ensure enough of that crosses the placenta. And it's the placenta that drives those adaptations in the mother. So you get increased peripheral insulin resistance and also increased secretion of insulin from the pancreas. So that all happens and that's all normal in a pregnancy. And that's also why pregnancies, are, women are highly susceptible to gestational diabetes, because that's when that whole system goes wrong. So let's dig in a little bit more into what the placenta's actually like. You know, we can imagine the pictures like in a textbook where you've got the, the fetus, the baby, and then you've got this like big pink thing with lots of blood vessels drawn in it. So what's it sort of made of and how is it actually constructed as it develops? Because it's it's a big thing that's got to grow in not a very large amount of time. It must be incredible. It's huge. So it's about one sixth of the weight of a normal baby at birth. So the mother is actually, a lot of the mother's sort of energetic 
her diet and her nutrition is actually going to grow a placenta as well as growing the baby. But the placenta needs to be that big in order to support this growth of the fetus. So you've got brain development, development of the body of the fetus, and the fetus obviously expending energy during the pregnancy, as is the placenta. So it's a very sort of energetic process to support fetal and placental growth. But the placenta actually starts off very early in pregnancy. It's the very first cell lineages that's defined in, in a pregnancy. It's, it's actually called the trophoblast, which is the lineage that then goes on to make this huge placenta. So going right back to the very earliest stage of life, you know, when when mummy and daddy love each other very much and you've got, you know, egg and sperm come together and, and that fertilised egg starts dividing and, and you get a little ball of cells. So at what stage are some of those cells deciding, OK, we're going to do placenta, you're going to do baby, off we go? So it, it all happens pre-implantation, obviously. And so it's within a couple of days of fertilisation. You get some cells that are deciding that they're going to be trophoblast cells. It's the first decision that's made. And those cells develop in a particular position, which is sort of related to how the embryo is developing. And some of those cells, as they attach to the uterine wall, will then sort of accumulate in that region where they've attached to the uterine wall, which is the uterus, which is the mother's tissue where the baby implants. And then they start to really sort of proliferate when they implant in order to make this placenta. It's an incredible process thinking about the, the growth of this, the growth of the blood vessel entwinement that needs to happen to make this all work. And one of the things when I was researching my book about cancer that was interesting was this idea that, you know, in humans, we have these genes that enable us to build a placenta and they're all involved in like invasiveness and, and making blood vessels. And, and those are the kind of genes that get hijacked when cancers become invasive and, and start making blood vessels. And I guess this is all sort of, this is a deep biological process that's deep in our evolution, but it, it can go kind of wrong as well. I think that's one of the things that's actually really remarkable about the placenta which is that, first of all, half the genes in the placenta belong to dad. So it's essentially a kind of foreign body, and yet the mother doesn't reject it. So the placenta is sending these signals to the mum to say, don't reject us because we're growing a baby. And so there are cells and genes that are involved in overcoming the mother's immune system and also invading a little bit. So invading the uterus a little bit in order to then attract blood vessels and create this circulation where there can be an exchange of nutrients and an exchange of hormones between mum and baby. And so all of those genes are obviously similar to genes that might be used by cancer cells to invade the immune system and also invade tissues. But what's really remarkable about a placenta is it stops. So placenta do not actually invade any more than they need to in order to support fetal growth. And you don't get bits of the placenta breaking off and going off to other parts of the body. So actually, the placenta is really well controlled. So it invades just enough to do its job and no more. It's absolutely fascinating. So what do we know about what's controlling this process of placental growth and setting it up to be this complex organ that's, you know, not only providing nutrients and oxygen, but making all these hormones and, and doing its thing? Well, we know a lot about the cell types that make up a placenta, and we know a lot about using sort of model systems. We can actually understand how stem cells develop into different cell types to have different functions. So some cell types of placenta are mainly focused on transporting nutrients. 
And then some cell types are mainly focused on making hormones. So these are the hormones that flood the mother's system to induce all these adaptations that we were discussing. So we know a little bit about how those lineages develop, and we know up to a point how that's controlled. But there's a lot of things we don't know. So one of the really interesting things about the placenta is it's a transient organ. So it's only around for, in a human, it's only around for nine months. So how does it know when the job is done? You know, what, what is the thing that sets off the delivery of the baby? And then, you know, how does the placenta know it needs to keep going for that length of time? And there's a, quite a lot of interest about something called placental aging. And it's one of the sort of ideas is that some placenta may age more quickly. And that could then result in some of these complications that, that you see in pregnancies of fetal growth restriction, being an example. All oh, right, like so the timer's a bit too fast. It's like, yep, yeah, we're cooked. Like, oh, no, you're yeah, not. Yeah, exactly. So it's yeah, so it's aging too quickly. And then of course there'll be a big interest in, in finding out why that might be the case. So coming back to the work that you do, you know, we used to work together a long, long time ago in the lab trying to understand like you know, how do you make a baby? How do you go from this single egg into a, a fetus? And what's the interplay between the genes that come from mum and the genes that come from dad and, and the environment of the, the womb and all this kind of stuff? So what are you looking at now to understand what's going on in this process of development and this, this role of the placenta as this much more than an interface, but as a bag of hormones? Yeah, so you and I, we, we worked together at Cambridge and it was, you know, it was a really fantastic time of, of studying these really odd genes, which are the imprinted genes. And then I've carried on with that work. And so we ended up studying these genes in the placenta and what was the function and what we found, which was really, at the time, it was really remarkable and yet absolutely intuitive, is that imprinted genes regulate the number of cells that make placental hormones. Wow. So they're fundamentally regulating the amount of hormones the placenta makes. So this is the offspring's genes, and they're influencing the mother's adaptations to pregnancy. And not just the offspring's genes, because half of the fetus's genes are from dad. So this is like some of dad's genes operating on mum through the placenta and going like, you get this, you don't get that, I want this. 100%, yeah, yeah, so exactly that. So what we found, which was the big discovery that we made a few years ago, is that impurities regulate the number of cells that make hormones, and that this particular gene that we've been working on called FILDA2, that gene has been silenced by the dad's germline. And what we found that that gene does is it's a negative regulator of the number of cells that make hormones. So what dad has done like one way of thinking about it is that dad has switched off half of his copy that he's giving to his offspring. And that increases the number of cells in the placenta that make hormones. So the mother is receiving a higher dose of placental hormones. Now hormones are really important for nutrients. So the male genome is trying to extract higher level of nutrients for his offspring, for the male the offspring. And then we sort of went a bit further than that. Because the other thing that hormones do, which is not well recognized, is they actually act on the mother's brain. Oh, wow. So you can imagine, okay, if I I rushed into your room at three o'clock in the morning, screaming my head off, (laughs) covered in, you know, excrement, you'd probably be not very happy to see me, right? No. (laughs) No. But the new mother, the new mother has to do that every single night for the first few months. So the new mother is adapted in order to take on this role of caring for her, her very vulnerable newborn infant. 
And those adaptations actually happen during the pregnancy. So the new mother is actually primed in this role, this mothering role. And you can see this really, really clearly in rodents. So you could just loads and loads of fabulous work that's been done by many different labs showing that, that a rodent mother just responds straight away to her pups and she knows exactly what to do. She licks them and grooms them and makes a nice nest for them. And that virgin mothers, actually, they don't know what to do and they have to kind of learn this behaviour over a number of days. Oh, what? So if you just have a female mouse and you, you give her a pup, she's like, Ugh. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So same as I was before I, I had my baby. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> so you kind of know it's a thing that's primed by hormones. So what we did was we knew that placental hormones were important for this priming of the mum's brain. And we knew that imprinted genes control the number of cells that make hormones. So we actually did a little experiment where we gave mother mice different types of placenta, making more or less hormones. And we could show that the mothers paid more or less attention to their pups when they were born. And yet these mothers were fully wild type mothers. And even if actually if you gave them wild type pups, they paid more attention to those pups because they'd been primed in pregnancy. So we proved that link between the placenta and the mum's brain. This is wild. So the fetus through the placenta is sending messages to the, the female brain to get everything ready yep. to, uh, and also to like get more nutrients for itself to, to grow as big and strong as it can as well. Exactly. So it's, it's sending all these signals to the mother during the pregnancy so that, that nutrients come during the pregnancy. It also stimulates the development of the breast for lactation. So it's actually ensuring nutrients after birth. And then the fetus is telling mum, I'm on my way. You need to be ready for this because it's going to be a bit of a shock when you've got me to look after. So all of this happens normally in a pregnancy. And it looks like the male genome has kind of got involved in this to influence the amount of care the mum gives her offspring. And so we kind of we sold it a bit as this idea that the male genome was boosting maternal care of the offspring. OK, my original title was actually paternal manipulation of maternal care. That sounds a bit creepy. Which I, mean, I thought, yeah, so exactly that's why I sort of thought, oh, it's probably not going to get past the reviewers. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I went for boosting. It's a bit more positive. So it's really, really important that mothers have this adaptation in order to look after their offspring. And it's interesting to speculate that the imprinting is kind of taking a little bit of advantage of this. So it comes back to this parental conflict about who who does what. And I do remember when I was doing my PhD with you about genomic imprinting, and there was this idea of the the conflict and imprinted genes are how, you know, males can exert some kind of influence in their offspring. Because if you think about the role of a, a male mammal in procreation, it's, you know, eat shoots and leaves, if you like. And so this is some way of having a bit more influence in the developing fetus and then and then ultimately the chances of success and then passing your genes on to the next generation because that's really what it's all about. Like, you know, you have to have babies and those babies have to have babies. Exactly. So our finding was very, very consistent with this parental conflict hypothesis, which you've just described really, really well, which is this idea that, you know, both parents have a child or children and in a mammalian pregnancy is the mum that provides all the nutrients in utero and provides nutrients postnatally through lactation. And then we're kind of taking that a bit further and say, well, it's also maternal care. It's not saying that dads don't, they're not involved. They are. So dads are involved in parental care and non-pregnant animals are involved in care, but it's, it's the, the mother 
the new mother that that has this sort of ready primed care and sort of does the big load initially so yeah, it was quite an important finding for us and, and very, yeah, very entertaining at the same time. <laughs> I mean, that is something that I wanted to dig into a bit because I know a lot of this work has been done in in rodents, in, in mice and things like that. But obviously, you know, childcare and, and caring and parental roles are so heavily gendered and you perhaps run the risk of saying like, well, you know, women, you're just meant to do this and go and change shitty nappies and wipe snotty noses and clean bums and things and that's because it's just in your biology right but this was the interesting thing right so so in our little observation this was with rodents and so what we showed was these mothers spent more time looking after their pups and licking and grooming them and nurturing them and they spent less time making nests and so i mean obviously you need a nest but they just were less focused on the nest building. So you could argue that they're actually spending more time looking after their offspring and less time on housekeeping. <laughs> so I sometimes drop that into a conversation. <laughs> so biology says, like, get a cleaner. Well, exactly. Someone's got to do it. So mum's busy doing the, the sort of nurturing bit. So, But but yeah, no, I think in a human scenario, it's obviously a very different interpretations of, of the roles of individuals and, and what people can now do you know, in terms of parenting children. You know, so we make decisions about what we're going to do. Whereas with with other mammals, you know, it's not that easy to kind of have a discussion about who's going to do what. Yeah, there's not two lions sitting down like going, are you going out hunting today or is it my turn? No, exactly, exactly. So so we can make those kind of decisions. And, you know, obviously, you know, the extent to which our studies in rodents are really mapping onto what happens in humans, it, it remains to be proven. And then there, obviously with the human pregnancy, there's a sort of more serious side to it, which is the other bit that we ended up looking at, which is in human pregnancies, you've got something called prenatal depression. So you'll have heard of postnatal depression. Everyone knows about postnatal depression. It's about 8 to 10% of mothers have a postnatal depression after they've had a baby. Uh, well, it turns out that actually mothers are more likely to be depressed in pregnancy. So there's a higher rate of depression in pregnancy. So it's quite a serious complication of pregnancy. And we've actually done some further work to have a look at some of the genes that we've been studying in our animal model to see whether their expression might be altered in the placenta of women with depression. And it looks like that that might actually be the case. And that most recently we've been looking at a hormone called placental lactogen. And we've shown that placental lactogen, the expression of that hormone in the blood of women is lower in women who have postnatal depression. So we're kind of some little bit of evidence that the sort of phenomenon we're looking at in animals, that in, in an animal model, may actually have relevance to quite an important complication in a human pregnancy. This feels so important because it does feel that there has been less attention focused on researching you know, women's health and health in pregnancy and particularly mental health when it has such massive implications for outcomes and, and you know, not only mothers' lives, but the lives of their of their children, and and this role of all the the hormones that are going on. Why are we not looking at this more? No, hundred percent, Kat. You're just so spot on. Actually, so there was a, a recent report called the Rand Report, and it identified pregnancy research as the least funded research in the UK compared to actually the cost of pregnancy and pregnancy complications. It's mad. Everyone's got to be born. <laughs> Why don't we research it? You know, it's something, obviously it impacts all of us. We've all been born. Some of us give birth. We all know people, you know, so it's, it's hugely important. But I think it's just not researched in 
because it's also considered to be something that's natural. You know, it's natural to be pregnant and have a baby and we shouldn't be interfering too much. But I think what we really know and understand is that, you know, obviously most pregnancies go well. But if a mother's depressed in pregnancy, it is linked to the baby being born a little bit lower birth weight. And it's also linked to children being at increased risk of neurodevelopmental problems and mental health problems later in their lives. So it's quite important that we actually try and understand the mechanisms that are increasing the risk. Some of it will be genetic, but some of it's clearly environmental. So the other thing that we're looking at in my lab is, is adversity in pregnancy, because probably more than half of all pregnancies in the UK now are exposed to some sort of adversity, whether that's due to mothers having a very high fat, high sugar diet or living in a stressful situation or being a bit overweight. There are all these adversities and we know those adversities are linked to some of these outcomes of low birth weight and problems later in life. But we also know the same adversities are linked to increased risk of mothers having depression and anxiety in pregnancy and afterwards. So, you know, there's this huge kind of story emerging about how it is important to think about the environment where mothers are pregnant and to ensure that they have the best knowledge about how to protect themselves against adversity and how to reduce the chances of developing depression and the consequences that will have for their children. Um, But to go back to the placenta and the work that you're doing, what are the questions that you still really want to find out about this incredible organ and, and what's going on? So one of the things about the placenta that's really useful is it has the same genome as the fetus because the fetus makes the placenta. And actually, it was quite surprising when we started this, when I talked to quite a few people and they thought the placenta was part of the mum. And like, no, no, that it's actually part of the fetus. So not everyone knows that it's fetal and it has the fetal genome. And so that means you could use the placenta as a tool to actually measure genes. So you can look at DNA sequence, but you can also look at the expressive genes in the placenta as a sort of proxy for what maybe is happening in the fetus. So one of the things that we're looking at with our placenta is to look at the sort of transcriptional signature of a placenta from mothers who are reporting depression versus our control mothers who have no indication of depression. Have a look at what genes might be altered. And that might give clues to why children from exposed to depression are more like develop certain um, disorders later in life. So that's one of the things we're really interested in. And then the other thing that we're very interested in is what environments in pregnancy, what exposures are actually causing the kind of changes which we're then linking to diseases. And, you know, this brings me back to my imprinted genes because they're epigenetically regulated. So it's a really attractive idea that these epigenetically regulated genes in the placenta are actually responding to different environments and then modulating the amount of hormones that are made by the placenta, which is then influencing the mother. And so that's the other bit. So, yeah, so we're looking at the sort of before and after aspect of it now. And then obviously looking for other genes that might also regulate placental hormone production in humans and in mice. And one final question. When you had your daughter, did you did you get a good look at the placenta? Did you, were you allowed to take it home? Uh, no. So I don't want to go into details because I don't want to put anyone off having a baby because it is, it's amazing having a baby. But it's, it's a bit of a <laughs> it's a bit of a crazy bit when they're, they're coming out. Um, I was busy. <laughs> um, but I did. I do remember someone saying it was awfully big. <laughs> and uh, I was thinking, you know, Dad's won the parental conflict thing here because, uh, yeah, big baby, big placenta. <laughs> so, 
but yes, it did go through my mind, but I was mainly focused on on the important bit of giving birth. <laughs> yep, not quite the moment to be thinking about science. That's Professor Ros John from the Preg Lab at Cardiff University. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? As Ros discussed, the placenta is a transient organ. It grows from cells that split off from the embryo early in development. It hangs around for nine months in a human and then it's gone. And as Sam Bejati, a group leader at the Wellcome Sanger Institute, recently discovered with his collaborators, Professors Steve Charnock-Jones and Gordon Smith, it's an absolute genetic dumpster fire in there. The pattern of genetic alterations in the placenta is different to any other human organ, and it resembles that of a tumour harbouring many of the same genetic mutations found in childhood cancers. As Sam explains, it's a finding that he never actually set out to make. The reason why we did this study has actually not that much to do with what came out of the study, if that makes sense. So if you, <laughs> if you want me to go all the way back, this sort of takes us back about seven years when I was a PhD student and did some other research. And um, it's a little complicated to explain, but the bottom line is at the end of that piece of research, we ended up with this observation that that if you look at the fertilized eggs, that was really about what does the fertilized egg give rise to in terms of the two cells and what part of the embryo, the pregnancy, do those two cells make up? And we did that study years ago, which seemed to suggest in a very indirect way that one cell, one derivative of the first cell division, mainly makes the embryo, the baby, and the other cell mainly makes the placenta. So what were you doing in those experiments? What did you set out to try and examine? The initial question was, can we say what the first two cells that form from the embryo give rise to? So we've got the fertilized egg that divides into two cells. And can we then study whether one cell mainly makes the placenta and the other mainly makes the embryo or whether that is not true? And the way we do that is by looking at mutational postcodes. So cells as they divide, acquire mutations, they thus leave behind a postcode of mutations. And that then enables us through sort of data wrangling to reconstruct where cells came from. So if you've got a piece of placenta tissue and you've got some tissue from the baby, you should sort of be able to compare and almost track back and say, okay, because these genetic changes are just in the placenta. They have come down that lineage, maybe from that first cell or small group of cells. And because these changes are only in the baby and not in the placenta, they must have come from another early group of cells. So there has been some kind of split here. Correct. It's a bit like if you, I don't know, if you look at an apple tree and you can look, you know, an apple that's on the left side of the tree, another apple that's on the right side of the tree, you can then follow the branches and understand at what point did they diverge? You know, do they come from one big branch together or are they literally at opposite ends of the tree? That's the sort of basic idea. So one question, obviously, is what tissues were you using and how do you get hold of them? Because obviously getting hold of human samples and particularly human samples early in development can't be that easy. 
Yeah, so this is where Gordon and Steve come into the equation. So Gordon and Steve are are very accomplished placenta or pregnancy researchers. They have spent the past 20 years trying to understand or predict which pregnancies go wrong and then try to find ways of mitigating that. And the way they have been doing this is by essentially collecting lots and lots and lots and lots of placentas through studies which are called the pregnancy outcome studies, I believe, yes, and uh, there are various iterations as one, two, three, and so forth. And, and what they've done is just systematically collect at birth placentas, different biopsies from different regions of placenta. And this is a key bit, a little bit of umbilical cord, which in embryological terms and developmental terms represents the baby. So you've got these samples and then you can extract DNA from them and then you can look at the genetic changes and compare them. So what sort of scale of data and, and how did you start comparing all this data to figure out what was going on? So what we do is something called whole genome sequencing. So every cell has got a, or every piece of tissue has got a unique genetic code. That code is 3 billion letters in length. So we read out all 3 billion letters of the different pieces of placenta and the piece of umbilical cord. And then we just compare them to each other. It's literally, you know, it's an A here. It's not an A over there. It's a T here. It's not a T over there. Mostly they will be the same because they come from the same biological unit from the same fertilized egg. But there will be very little tiny sort of changes in between things those are mutations and those are the mutations that, that represent that mutational postcode that I talked about at the beginning. So when you did compare the embryo tissue, the baby, with the placenta and, and these mutations, then what did you find that surprised you? So the, the umbilical cord tissue was not particularly exciting. The umbilical cord tissue representing the baby, we found a few mutations and we were able to say, well, in some pregnancies, going back to our original question, actually the two daughter cells are completely separate. So one cell really does make all of the baby and the other cell probably makes all of the placenta. So they are completely sort of separate things. In other cases, that distinction was not so clear. Mostly it was a sort of two-third, one-third thing, as in one cell makes two-thirds of the baby and the other cell makes two-thirds of the placenta and vice versa with the one-third that is missing. That's a bit complicated now, but that's what we found and that sort of answered our question. But the really exciting bit, which we did not expect to find, which completely blew us off our socks, is that when we looked at each of the mutations of each piece of placenta, they really looked like tumours. Wow. So that's weird because obviously I've spent a lot of time researching and writing about cancer. And the one thing we know about cancer is that it is full of mutations and many more mutations than we'd expect to find in normal healthy tissue. And you're, you're telling me that placentas, which I understand to be normal healthy tissue, are just full of mutations. What's going on? So when we looked at the placental tissues, what we found is that, first of all, the number of mutations was incredibly high. If you sort of normalize it over per day of life, because the placenta has only lived for nine months, we end up with mutation burdens that are very, very similar, in fact, higher than most childhood cancers, which is quite extraordinary. And the second thing that we found, which we didn't expect to find, we can look at what kind of mutations are. So they are just the normal mutation that one gets when the cell doesn't divide quite right. And then there are other mutations that have got a particular sort of signature, as we call it. And the signature of the mutations in the placenta, again, very much was a childhood cancer signature, which was quite extraordinary. 
So what does this mean? It's interesting. So one could look at this and say the placenta just doesn't care. The placenta just hangs around for nine months and then dies. So it's a very unusual organ. It comes out of nothing and then, then just goes away. So maybe, therefore, Mother Nature doesn't actually care what happens to the genetic integrity of the placenta, and therefore it doesn't bother to maintain it. It puts its resources somewhere else. So that might be one way of looking at it. And therefore, you end up essentially getting the Wild West in the placenta, and then it's over after nine months anyway. Another explanation might be that perhaps just because the placenta has to divide so massively fast. I mean, if you think about it, it's quite, again, you could argue, well, it's extraordinary that we end up making a baby out of one cell, which is very, very true. But the placenta has to grow faster than the baby because it has to provide nutrition for the baby, particularly initially. So we end up in this period of quite ridiculous growth. And maybe during that period of ridiculous growth, it becomes impossible to maintain the integrity of the placenta. I mean, it does make sense that if the baby is the thing that's going to hang around and contribute to the next generation and the placenta isn't, that we would have evolved to invest time and resource in repairing any mistakes in in development in the baby and not really care so much about the placenta because it's on its way out, right? Yes, and we, we found a little bit of evidence in that. So there's a, it's been known for a very, very long time that very occasionally the placenta, the whole of the placenta can be genetically very abnormal, yet the baby is just an utterly normal, beautiful, little healthy baby that goes on and becomes a healthy adult. And we were actually able to see that in our data. There was one case where there was a baby that had three copies of a particular chromosome. It should have only had two. And then what we found is that that additional copy was sort of shuffled into the placenta, almost pushed out of the baby into the placenta. And then in the baby, one copy was lost and we were back to what the baby should have, which is two copies of the chromosome to be able to survive. So it almost paints a sort of picture of the placenta as a, as a dumping ground of human development. I sort of love this idea of uh, let's just shuffle all the nonsense into the placenta because we're going to get rid of it at the end of it. And it, it does remind me thinking about the evolution of this, so the kind of evolutionary strategies when you compare things like long-lived animals like humans or elephants with really short-lived animals like mice, because we know that that short-lived small animals, they tend to have really high burdens of cancer, but they they live fast, they die young, they reproduce and then, you know, they're off to the next generation. Whereas larger animals, longer lived animals, we invest more time and resources in maintaining our bodies because they've got to last for a long time. Absolutely. And actually what you just said raises a really interesting question. What does the placenta of an elephant look like in terms Ooh, yeah. of mutations? What does the placenta of a mouse look like in terms of mutations? I think it's probably going to be easier to get mouse placentas than elephant placentas. Though. Possibly, yeah. unless you have got very good friends at London Zoo. <laughs> That's an experiment for you. Write the grant now, we'll do it. I find this stuff just mind-blowing that the more we have the tools and technologies to really dig into DNA and mutations in smaller and smaller amounts of tissue, just the more complexity we we uncover. It really does blow my mind. So where where do you want to go next with this? What are the next questions that you're really interested in in answering? So it, to me, it throws up two questions. The big elephant in the room really is, do these genetic abnormalities in the placenta associate or predict pregnancies that go wrong? You know, that's it's a critical question about maternal and, and fetal health. 
and about pregnancy, which we haven't been able to answer. Simply, we haven't got the power in that initial study to do it. But we now know how to do this properly. And the way to do that properly is because each piece of placenta was different from the same placenta. We will have to look at lots and lots of pieces from the same placenta. And the other thing that we have learned is that we really have to use that very detailed sequencing, the three billion letter reading whole genome sequencing to really capture all changes. And I think that gives us a basis to roll out this approach to a very large cohort, again, in collaboration with Gordon and Steve, who've done this wonderful collecting of placentas and everything we need to know about the pregnancy to be able to answer that question. On a cancer sort of angle, as a childhood cancer researcher, which is sort of um, what uh, uh, drives me most of the time, the fundamental question that I'm interested in is exactly what you articulated. How can a piece of tissue be genetically a cancer, yet it is entirely normal and it is not a cancer? And beyond the placenta, that's something that we've seen in, in, in other situations in children as well, that, that normal tissues of children harbor really, you know, quite classical cancer-causing mutations, yet they're just normal tissues. Turns out that life is a lot weirder than we ever thought, isn't it? It is. And this is the beauty of sequencing that we can sort of begin to unravel the genetic code of life, of Mother Nature, and all her peculiarities. All this stuff was completely unknown before we were able to, to read the code. And, and this is really where, where the power of this technology lies. Sam Bajati from the Wellcome Sanger Institute. And if you're interested in learning more about mutations and cancer, the extent of mutations in normal healthy bodies, and the risks of cancer in different animal species, then check out my new book, Rebel Cell, Cancer, Evolution and the Science of Life, available in paperback, ebook and audiobook from all good and all evil bookshops. That's all for now. Thanks to my guests, Ros John and Sam Bejati. We'll be back next time taking a look at some of the wildest and weirdest news stories from the world of genetics to come out this year. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, and everything else, just head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter, at geneticsunzip. And please, 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 please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. It helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Katani. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo was designed by James Mayle, and our audio production was by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.